Okay, let's pray, and then we will get uh, get rolling with that. Lord, I thank you for everyone that's here tonight. Thank you for this time that we can uh, gather together and open your word, study together. And uh, Lord, we, we pray for uh, clarity in understanding your word. We pray for um, those that uh, can't be here tonight and are going to listen in later that they'll uh, capture the uh, understanding of where we're at and where we're going in this incredible letter of John. So Lord, we thank you for all of this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So last week we were in uh, verses 7 through 11 of uh, chapter 2. And once again, it's the first John, not the gospel of John that we're in. First John 2. And um, we were, uh, Daniel, I think you called that the, a, a love that banishes darkness. And um, when we are in fellowship with God, and you're going to hear that understanding of fellowship again tonight. When we're in fellowship with God, when we're walking in the light, we also walk in love. And it's a basic spiritual principle that when Christians are out of fellowship with God, they cannot get along with God's people. And uh, we're all members of God's family, so we need to love one another. And that was the even the old commandment back in the day of Moses in Leviticus 19. And you look through that and you realize all of the different things that are categorized. If you're loving me and loving others, you will do the following. And there's quite the list there that we had. And so we move from that section of uh, verses uh, 7 through 11. And in your Bible, you may notice the start of a new paragraph uh, there, but it's uh, it's kind of calling together, you know. So we're we're light is already shining in the darkness. Um, the last verse there, but the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And then John moves into this section where he, as the the loving father that he is to these people, um, goes, okay, so this is what we need to be focusing on. And he starts there in verse 12 with, uh, this, is, this is what I'm writing to you about. So if someone could read uh, verse 12 through 14, that would be great. Read it out loud. <laughs> I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you're know, you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fa uh, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. All right, so here we have the loving father. In this case, John is calling the saints, calling all of the believers little children. 
And we, we see that. And all the, the children of God are the forgiven people of God, those that are you know, standing underneath the blood of Christ. And uh, we've been forgiven. And we ought to grow in the Lord, become strong young men, uh, women in the faith, ultimately spiritual fathers and mothers. And we'll explain why I'm adding uh, the, the women and, and mothers in a moment. But one of John's favorite uh, designations uh, for recipients of uh, his letters and for his, uh, you know, is, is, is the word children. And it's a term of endearment in his uh, letters to describe all the people under his leadership. And uh, tonight what he's doing is he's using that statement, that little children's statement, as a one-size-fits-all uh, title. That's, so it's regardless of age. And then you see him move into uh, categories past that. Uh, so he's referring to um, all believers in the little children there. And he then makes a twofold division of that group, kind of a metaphorical division. Those that have been Christians for a long time. So who, what, are the, what are they called? Fathers. Fathers. Uh, those who uh, have been Christians for a shorter time are the young men. <coughs> so the inclusive group of little children is listed first. And then uh, for all believers, and then John uh, distributes uh, them into two groups. And that's how we need to picture that. So young men refers to those younger in the faith, spiritual novices for lack of a better term. Fathers refer to those that are more spiritually matured. Um, uh, the, the, the thing you need to notice in this is that the word young men and the word fathers is never used by John for the whole audience. So um, it, it's not, it doesn't mean that age doesn't play a part of this. But he's referring mostly to spiritual uh, depth and understanding. There is, there is an age thing to it as well, and we'll explain that a little bit more in a moment. But for the most part, it's spiritual growth that we're de- uh, dealing with here. Uh, different levels of spiritual maturity. Uh, Jesus refers... Uh, to different levels of spiritual maturity when talking to Peter. And does anyone know what he used there as the picture? Uh, if you love me, uh, well, serving him. Yeah. But what, what was the picture there? If you love me, feed my, my sheep. Tend my sheep. Yes. And it was lambs and sheep. It was lambs and sheep. So once again, it was a designation of younger uh, older in, in that. Um, Paul talks about the weaker brother in uh, his epistles. And John's use of young men and fathers uh, seems to fit that paradigm. And once again, everyone, that's why it becomes so important to use Scripture to understand Scripture. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna go, oh, okay, I see how this works here. Um, spiritual maturity is a process. Um, 
very, very often, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've been in ministry for a while now. I'm going to tell you, just spiritual maturity is a process that many times has little to do with age. Okay, so we'll, once again, I'm, I'm saying this a lot, but we'll deal with that in a few moments. So first of all, you have here uh, these two kinds of uh, people, but within spiritual infants, and we're going to get to this right now, um, there's, there's actually two kinds of spiritual infants in the New Testament. So first, those are those that Christians that are newly born again, newborn infants, for example, uh, they need the same kind of things to grow. They need food. And so Peter tells uh, them as newborn infants, they need to long for pure spiritual milk. First Peter 2, 2, that it may buy it. You may grow up into salvation. And so um, that idea there is uh, just God's word that you need the, the love of fellow believers around you, uh, the local church around you and the growth that happens with being uh, of people that are more mature in the Lord around you. Um, and, you know, we can tell many times when uh, people are not spiritually mature, they're 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 the newborn uh children of God. Uh, let's think of, of little children for a moment, real little children. Um, they're ruled by their emotions a lot, aren't they? They're, they're ruled by that. They easily excited, easily frightened, easily distracted. And that actually is what happens a lot with new believers. And uh, so you, they're, they're, they're brand new believers. But then there's also another type of spiritually uh, infant people. Um, and, and Paul actually refers to them as people of the flesh. In, in 1 Corinthians 3.1, Christians who have, may have been believers for some time, but who are stunted in their spiritual growth because of the carnality that they allow themselves to be in. Um, the, uh, it, the, the picture here is, let's say you've got someone who's been a Christian for 40 years and they've got a bottle in their mouth being rocked by someone. Yeah, it's just. If I had to take the baby bottle, I couldn't do a problem. Yeah, that's right. If you if, if you hadn't taken them, um, you know, it's 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 uh, it's a picture that should never be seen, really, in in our Christian life. If you've been a believer for a while, you are not supposed to act like babies. Babies. You should be able to eat your meat. Correct. Um, and so uh, that, see, so I, I just wanted to make that in, in, instance in there is that, so age isn't everything, but also length of time of being a believer should produce this trajectory that is has maturity involved in it. And if that's not happening, something's wrong. And we need to understand that. 
Um, I also want you to notice here in this uh, section of, of Scripture uh, where, uh, I don't know. Yeah, well, I'll go ahead and do it. Um, ver- right at the beginning of verse 12 there, it says, I am writing uh, to you. Um, and uh, so he switches to that from that uh, to uh, I have written to you. And that actually, these are little things that you would maybe never pick up. Um, that has actually puzzled Greek scholars for years. Yeah, Ron? Yeah, I was listening to somebody talk about this. It was me. No, anyway, no, I'm just kidding. This guy, a fellow, F.F. Bruce, who was very well known, he even said in this section he couldn't make out why the change was made. And I'm going to I'm going to explain it. Because unlike F.F. Bruce, I've got it figured out. No. But yeah, so there, there's uh, just a little, and these are the things that when you're studying Scripture, it's just it's kind of interesting when you slow down and you notice these, these things. And so you have there, right at the beginning of verse 12, I am writing, verse 14, I have written. So it, it, it shifts from present tense to what we called uh, two weeks ago perfect tense, which is actually completed tense. Yeah, mine isn't. Okay, what does yours say? It says, I write. Yeah, NIV. NIV is different. So yeah. that's why, why are they doing that? Because they're wrong. No, I'm just kidding. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding, 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 kidding. kidding, kidding. It's, so what they're, what, so what, no, the NIV is fine. It's a good thing. What they're trying to do there, Judith, is resolve a, the problem. Oh, okay. Okay. So, uh, a you know a, a dynamic word for word translation isn't going to try to resolve the theological issue. They're just going to go blah. Here it is. Deal with it. And uh, so the NIV uh, editors were trying to guide you into a guide you into a path of understanding because for example um once uh, the, w- many people actually argue this that this shows that John was was writing and then stopped and then came back and and started writing again uh, basically he put down his pen and didn't write for a while uh, he returned, picked up the pen, and said, "Oh yes, I've already told you this, so let me tell you again." Um, but I, obviously, I don't think that makes sense, and so that's why the NIV writers actually changed that. The tense shift is just a device of a good writer who desires to emphasize more. So I've written. I'm, I am writing. I mean, it's it's, it's he's yeah. So he's pushing into this this uh, argument uh, it doesn't signify any change in the meaning but i just wanted to play that out because when i was reading it earlier this week i was like man there's a lot of people all over the fence on this and i, I really think it's more about you know emphasis yeah dive, diving into it more um and uh but it's not completely stylistic because repetition uh means intensity of focus uh, in scripture, uh, attention get, getting. Um, so let's let's dive in to uh, verse twelve specifically. Uh, John's writing because our sins are forgiven 
He says that there, little children, because your sins have been forgiven for his name's sake. Um, The literal is your sins have been forgiven. Perfect tense. So once again, what does perfect tense mean? We went over this a few weeks ago. It means uh, completed action. Okay, once and for all. I like that, Ron. Yeah. 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 So it's a completed action with an ongoing uh, effect, an ongoing results as you move forward. Um, so it conveys the notion your sins have been forgiven once and for all. Oh, okay. Um, and uh, your sins are never going to be brought up before God again. It's. Uh, yeah, so it, that's that's the idea here. Uh, it's listed first by John because forgiveness, everyone, is the fun- fundamental experience of the Christian life that we need to be resting on. It's a condition of fellowship with God. Forgiveness of, of our sins is the one thing, no matter new believer, and see, now you can see where John's going with this. Forgiveness of sins is the one thing, whether it's brand new spiritual baby or a person that's been a believer for 98 years and has grown and grown and grown. You still have one fundamental thing, no matter what, that is exactly the same. Forgiven sins. It's the very heart of the center of the gospel in the book of Acts. And so John's wanting to encourage his readers. Uh, he adds this phrase, and I, this phrase is an interesting phrase, for his name's sake. Yeah, yeah uh, just to go by what uh, Davis is saying with this whole thing, which is confusing to me sometimes, the tense is, he's writing the present tense, I write to you that your sins... Uh, are. have been forgiven. Mm-hmm. I think it's in the perfect tense. I think the perfect meaning that it's a one-time action with results that they're still forgiven. I mean, it's not a, you know, we don't lose our forgiveness. It's, Correct. I'm writing to you now for something that was an action of sins have been forgiven by Christ once and for all. Yes. Okay. Yep. Um, for his name's sake, their sins... Our sins are forgiven because of what Jesus did on the cross. God's name stands for something, though. What, what does that, when you think about for his name's sake, what would that potentially be going after? What the name of Jesus represents? Yahweh's salvation or no? No. So uh, it's, it deals with God's character. Okay, we are forgiven on the basis of who he is and what he's done. Our sins are forgiven, but not for our sake. It's his grace. Yeah, it's his grace. They're, they are forgiven for Jesus' sake. In other words, John is saying, your slate's clean. It will always remain clean because Jesus died in your place. And it's a, a forensic forgiveness. So this term forensic forgiveness 
means that when you trust in Christ as your Savior, God, through Christ, forgives you of your sin based on the atonement that Christ made on the cross. Okay? We need to make sure to understand that. When we, we sin as a Christian, we've talked about this a few weeks ago too, but when we sin as a Christian, we break fellowship with God, but we're still in the family. We do not lose our sonship. Yes. Okay, so so it's like if someone is uh, taken before the court and he tries to put the rule of law, then that's a forensic judgment that's given? Yeah. So the, the Greek word there for forgiveness means to release from legal or moral obligation of consequence. So you're exactly right. Uh, cancel pardon. You know, in our government world that we live in now, you know, people have, you know, hey, so should so-and-so be pardoned? So an interesting thing about a pardon, and I, and I think this, this, is, this actually helps biblically. So if a president or a governor, you know, if it's a state offense, so if it, let's say a governor pardons a person and more evidence is found out later, that they are, they were guilty. Does that change the pardon? I don't think so. No, it's canceled. Yeah, it's gone. The the, so that's how firm that forensic forgiveness is. So even if more dirt is found later, you can't you can't be tried again for it. So when, when Jesus says your sins are tossed as, you know, as far as the east from the west, it, it, it all matches that understanding once and for all. It's gone. It's gone. Never to be brought back to God again. Now, once again, though, the idea here is uh, so we don't lose our sonship. We don't lose our salvation. Um, but... Uh, we do lose fellowship with God when we sin. Um, and, that, and once again, that's a different understanding of forgiveness, different subheading of, of what that looks like. Um, and then when we looked at 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, and you practice what it says there, you were supposed to confess our sins. What does that do? Um, it restores fellowship. It's not restoring the sonship relationship. That's taken care of. It's restoring the fellowship. Um, so when John says our sins are forgiven, it's, it's the, he's talking about the big enchilada. It's done. It's complete. And he's saying that for his name's sake. And that's actually a, a pretty uh, familiar refrain in the book of Psalms. Psalm 23. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Uh, Psalm 79, help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name. Deliver us, atone us for our sins for your name's sake. Um, your sins are not forgiven for your sake. And that's kind of a radical 
thing to understand. They're not forgiven for anything you have done or deserved, but because of what Christ has done and earned for us. So, as you said, if we believe in Christ, but we sin, we part from God because we sinned at that moment. For instance, Edward, who we pray. Mm-hmm. So he was a believer, or yeah, I guess was. So can he kind of fell out of it, or how is that? Or God is going to decide what's going to happen with him because now he's, let's say, cursing and constantly living the way we shouldn't as a Christian. But he was a believer, so can you just, or he's going to just have? No, I know exactly what you're asking, and this. Uh, so we believe here that you, just like what it says with forgiveness of sin. So if you are actually saved, it's done. So you cannot then lose your salvation. The question then becomes, was the person actually saved to begin with? That's, that's where you, you have to backtrack. Now, at the end of the day, I get that we're going around a circle and we're going to get at the same point whether the person's saved or not. You know, it's kind of one of those things. So let's take this person. This person is definitely acting as if a, uh, they're unsaved. Right. All right. So I, I would say, well, according to what John says with growing in the Lord and being in him and also the parable of the wheat and the tares, um, which look like, you know, the tares look like wheat. And then over time, you realize they're not. And so you, you, you go, oh, now the, the true wheat is what's harvested. The tares could look like believers, but they really never were mm-hmm. believers. And we don't catch that in our non-agricultural uh, mindset. <laughs> uh, I got hands all over the place. Uh, yes, Anthony, first. So, um... Correct. It's for his name's sake, which goes back. I, I love it. That's great. Yeah, and I also think about the uh, parable of the prodigal son. He was a son. He ended up in the pig pen. He lived at hell in the hotel long. And eventually he came to his senses and he returned home because he was still a son. And so I, mm-hmm. I would have to think that yeah. God would bring back somebody who belongs to him. He would never stay in He never became a pig. By being the pig pen, but he was there, but he was still considered a son until until uh, you know he returned home. And the father was waiting for him. So, and I think it's important to acknowledge, in light of what Ron was saying, especially when we have to bring these types of you know. This is where the rubber hits the road. God, yeah, sovereign God's sovereignty and salvation, which obviously, as a staff, we unanimously affirm. You know, sort of a. A five point, you know, whatever, you know, approaches salvation soteriology, but this is where the rubber hits the road. And so I think it's important to acknowledge pastorally that true Christians often go through protracted valleys of the shadow of death, to use the biblical terminology. And so what we have to trust is that if, that if their faith was genuine and if God, um, if they are, as Ron said, a son, 
they may go and blow the money on the prostitutes and the brothels and they may do all of the horrible things and they may end up eating, you know, you know, slop in a pigsty, but in the end the that relationship yeah. will never be well, will ne- the forensic relationship will never be broken. And, and they will come back. Yeah, and it comes back. And also that's how church discipline works as well. So church discipline eventually if it, if it gets to the point where a person is not uh, you know just just not doing what they're supposed to be they, it breaks fellowship and and scripture says we're supposed to treat them at and this is a key as an unbeliever and bingo and it goes back to the prodigal son that I mean see you see how this all works so if you if 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 it breaks fellowship that doesn't mean that they're not necessarily a believer but what you're trying to be helpful in is getting them to see the error of what's going on in their life and for them to be drawn back into fellowship and confessing of sins and, and Judah's an exact example of the opposite because he broke the fellowship but also took it in his hand, so he was unsaved, obviously. Yeah, yeah. I, anyone that, that tries to make the argument that Judas was a believer uh, is on pretty thin theological ground. So yeah, you're you're right. So um, it, trust me, I hear people do that. So you know, you know, hey, he was used by God. And so doesn't it mean that he was a believer? Uh, a lot of people used by God that weren't believers. Uh, so you can't use that, you know, as a, an argument anyway. Um, but um, the for his name's sake, um, go to Isaiah 43 for a moment when you think about this. I am, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. It's, it's really, when, when he's saying it's for my own sake, God's divine honor is at stake. If he were to refuse to forgive the sins of a repentant sinner who had called upon the name of Jesus for salvation, that's, that doesn't work. It's for his name's sake. We are sinners forgiven for his name's sake. Uh, And really what it comes down to, and this is what's so hard for some people, because many people will want to live in this world of, you know, my life looks way better than Daniel's life. And so obviously he's a sinner and I'm saved. And, you know, there's just, you know, it's a comparison game that, that people get into, I mean, many people go, you know, hey, at least I'm a decent person. So obviously God must be okay with me. And it doesn't work because it's for his name's sake. He can't be around any sin. And we're saved sinners. And my, and this is the beauty of it for anyone. Uh, no matter how massive your sin has been, how filthy of a life a person has lived. You have not lived a life that is too great of a sinful life uh, for God not to be able to pardon that. 
you know, our God is victorious over sin. And it's, it's because of the unsearchable depth of riches of Christ's atonement. There is no single sin or mass of sins that are beyond God's forgiveness. I was going to just add to maybe get a little heady and esoteric here, but I think it's really cool to think about on the whole hanging forgiveness on this idea of the, for the sake of his name, what that means when we get down into what we affirm as far as theology proper, our doctrine of God, what that means is that going to the whole repentance thing, that if God turns away a repentant sinner who who is the, I, I, the other thing I think about with the comparison game, I was just listening to a podcast the other day that was talking about using, it was, he was talking about the example that we see so often of the Pharisee and the tax collector who pray in the temple. Which is the, the comparison. Is the guy yeah. who's like, hey, look at me, I'm a great guy. You know, thank you, God, for making me a great guy, you know, and, and then, and then it, that I'm not like this tax collector. And so if God doesn't forgive the, the tax collector, the repentant man who can't even lift his head, who beats his chest and says, have mercy on me, O God, a sinner, right? The, the Kiri that we talk about, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, when you go to you know, old, you know, old medieval liturgies and things like that. If God doesn't forgive that person, because of what he's already said, Isaiah 43, if God doesn't forgive that person, he ceases to be God. Therefore, God cannot cease to be God. Therefore, he is compelled by his own character, by who he is as God, to forgive and that, I agree that for yeah. me, that boggles my mind to think about how it's built into God's character, and therefore we can have such great assurance. There is no, there is zero question that if we are that tax collector beating their chest, have mercy on me, O God, a sinner, he will forgive us. What, what yeah. more assurance could we and, possibly and, want and, or have? And God glorifies himself in this process, yes. in the process of forgiveness. And it matters then whose name I'm forgiven in, if I'm really forgiven. So I have to give up the notion that I'm better than Hitler. <laughs> yeah, well, you yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um, you know what one of the three most powerful words are? Uh, you know, it, well, it, just in our own lives is when someone says, I forgive you. I mean, just the, the relief. That when Jesus says, Father, forgive them. I mean, you realize how powerful that is? That's the advocate saying, forgive them. For they know not what they do. So God saves us. All right. Um, and uh, we're forgiven today because of the gift of sacrifice of Christ. Um, now then our love, our service, which we'll be talking about on Sunday, uh, our talents uh, that we use in our serving him, our devotion to Jesus uh, is all in the light of that great sacrifice. Uh, it doesn't save us. It's a outpouring of what he's done for us and what's within us. Um, for his name's sake, because then when we serve him the way we're supposed to serve him, it is for his name's sake. We glorify 
him then in everything that we do and say. And that's the whole idea there. Um, so uh, we see that that. OK, so we've done one verse. <laughs> let's go to verse 13. Uh, let's go to verse 13. You're on the Daniel pace. I don't know, man. You're a bad influence on me. I just, whatever. I know I didn't listen. Verse 13, I, I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I, am, I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. And so John's writing because we've, we've come to know, know God uh, from the beginning. He's speaking to really spiritually mature people of the church here. Um, uh, and uh, there's something about a Christian's mature walk with the Lord uh, that, that's, that's found here. Um, basically, the key mark of maturity in this context is knowledge of God through Christ. Uh, and let me, let me do it this way. Um, there's something that's pretty cool about a mature Christian's walk with the Lord that, that comes from a many years of trusting the Lord. Um, and, and for me, I love being around people that are spiritually mature, uh, that have been in the Lord for a while. And this is where sometimes the age plus the maturity is a pretty cool thing to be around people like that. Um, they just kind of exude the the beauty of Christ coming in through their lives and the experiences that they've had. Uh, Spurgeon actually wrote one time, Charles Spurgeon wrote one time, he was a younger preacher at the time and he was talking about forgiveness in his sermon and his grandfather happened to be there and Spurgeon asked his grandfather to close the service in prayer and the uh, his grandfather came forward, put his hand on Spurgeon's shoulder and said, Charles can tell you about it, but I've lived it. And, uh, and I, and I, I really, I, you know, I've heard different variations of this from people that have been believers for a while, but, uh, basically that this idea that the longer I serve him, the sweeter he grows. And, um, so maybe John even is thinking about his own life here now. He's, he had walked with Jesus now for over 50 years. He was, uh, when he was a young man, perhaps even the youngest of the 12, uh, he outran Peter. <laughs> we forget that. <laughs> to Jesus' tomb, found it empty. Uh, so uh, we're just saying there there's, could be a thing there. Um, but as a mature Christian who's also mature in years, uh, John's writing to mature believers in the churches and saying, hey, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And, and then in verse 13 there, you, you see him um, then turn to the young men. Um, and he's telling these young men that they've overcome the evil one. So Christians are people who have overcome the evil one. 
Very simple. How have we overcome the evil one through Christ? John does not want these younger believers to think that just because they do not have the mature years behind them, or maybe even the spiritual maturity behind them of some of the people that are around them, that there's any less importance or any less value. John's telling them now how to fight battles and win victories because they have overcome the devil. So it's the perfect tense again. You have overcome. You, you, you may be younger, but you've put Satan under your feet and smushed him. You've won the victory through Christ. And this youth period that is in people's lives, it's usually a period of uh, I, idealistic vision, higher energy, passion, there's more conflict even, some pride, inexperience in that. Um, there can be, once again, the emotional roller coaster in some of people's lives. Uh, inexperience is cured by living life. All right? And um, once again, we mentioned it uh, earlier in our, in our prayer time, earlier in talking about some of these things, to... to Put onto young children. You get where I'm going with this? To put on top of young children the, a decision of like doing surgeries and stuff to mutilate their bodies. And, and you know, hey, you, you should let any person of any age do this stuff. Permanently. Is permanently. It's crazy. Well, on so many different levels. Um, and, and, and so you even see this here. Um, and, and one of the things that you have to even do, uh, so let's backtrack a little bit too. And I, I can remember times as a younger pastor getting overly idealistic about certain issues and, and, kind of saying different things about stuff and, oh, I'm going to be a total Christian pacifist and I'm going to be, you know, just different things like that. And you know what, how much of that has been solved in my life? Living. Living. (laughs) Going, oh, that's why in Ecclesiastes says there's a time for peace and a time for war and a time, you know, it's like, oh, you know, God has taken me through life with his word to then understand how to apply it and to share it for others. And so um, John's appealing to spiritual vitality here of the younger people um, to overcome the temptations. Well, and, and that's, and he, so he's a pe- but that's what he's doing. He's appealing to that. Yeah. That's, you know, it's like, okay, Davis, you are a go-getter. You're, how old are you, Davis? 22, 21, 23. All right. Notice how he said that. I'll be 23 in a couple of days. It doesn't matter. It's I'll be 23. You know what? When you're 53 and my birthday's next month, I do not say I'm almost 54. Anyway, it's just a different thing. At my age, I say now I'm 77 and a half. 
<laughs> I'm, I'm doing the opposite. I've got counting the, the, the half years and the months now. All right, there we go. Fair enough. Slowing her down. Um, but he's appealing to the, the spiritual vitality of the, the younger believers. Uh, you, you realize that most new believers are the ones that are most responsible for evangelism within churches? That's, that's, and so John's, hey, you've overcome the devil. Yes. And I think um, Bible study, Davis was um, uh, sharing that, and I had the same experience when we um, accept uh, Christ and start to read the Bible, the devil constantly attacking us. And I think, I don't know if that's something what it's putting out there where it says you overcome the evil one. Honestly, yeah. I word by word, I, I experienced that because when the devil feels like, hey, I'm losing one of them, get back, get back, get back. And God is fighting for us to read the Bible, come to church, you know, and do the worship and all of that. I, isn't that true? Yeah. yeah, and yeah. I think that's word by word means that when we do that. Yeah, so it's definitely, you know, you, you need to be overcoming the temptations of Satan in your life. Uh, you, you have fought the good fight. You have won. He's basically saying what our football team over here in L.A. uses as a, as a mantra, fight on. He's saying fight on. In the, but fight on in the strength of the Lord and his word. Fight on. That vitality. I put that in, in, you know, what they tried to, it's A, B, 9, 5, 7, whatever you said. If someone would put out that, hey, words of God. That's what we need to teach the children. Can someone put that out there as a law, maybe? Well, you can put it out there as a law. It, it'll go one Yes and eight. No, it'll be the exact opposite of what the other one was. But um, uh, so verse 13 here, we'll we'll wrap this up, concludes with the address to children. Um, and this is a different Greek word that, uh, that was translated little children in verse 12. Uh, this word is more common in the New Testament, generally denotes a, a young age or an innocence that is uh, associated with children. So is it younger? Is it this word a younger? Well, he, he views all of his recipients as children, remember. But this is a hint basically at a central theme that happens in 1 John 3 when he speaks of our relationship with God as children to their father. Okay, so yeah, in, in ways, but it's not a, it, in this case here, um, you know, because you've overcome the evil one, I, I have written you children because you know the father. He's, he's switching not to spiritually immature children, but children overall, but it is got to denote, denotes God the father and his children. So even a very young child, Yeah. Even if he doesn't know a lot more about his father, you know. Correct. Um, verse 14. He's writing because uh, overcome Satan through the word. Um, let's, let's read this. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Um, so uh, know God by the virtue of new birth 
You know God by the virtue of new birth. Those who are spiritually mature have come to a deeper knowledge of the Father. Know him with an intimacy that only happens over time. Uh, John mentions again the young men here. He does so with the nuance uh, with the, the young men. He says first he tells them that they are strong. Uh, what is one of the characteristics of youth? Strength. Yeah, youth is characterized by strength. John's saying, look, those of you who are younger in the faith, you are strong. And the reason you're strong is because the word of God is in you. Yeah, so in this last verse, abides. he's yeah. actually saying the same thing. You've overcome the wicked one in both those verses. But then here he's expanding on Why? How, they, how? how they are strong in yeah. the word. So the second thing he says about the young men, uh, that you're strong because you know and use God's word. Just as working out with weights will give you strength. I wouldn't know that, but I've been told that. (laughs) Working out spiritually with the weight of God's word makes you strong spiritually. Uh, It takes discipline to work out physically, enjoy the benefits. It takes discipline and study of God's word to be spiritually strong. Uh, Psalmist says that uh, his in Psalm one verse two, his delight is in the, the law of the Lord, and his law he meditates day and night. Um, so, some questions just for us to think of as we kind of round the last corner here: Do we delight in the Word of God? Do we relish in it? Do we desire to spend time in it? Does it permeate your life? Do you put it into regular practice? Is the Bible a high priority in your life? Those are the things that John's really referring to when he makes that statement, the word of God abides in you. Now, evil one here obviously refers to who? Satan. Satan has no authority over your life unless... You yield authority to him. And and that's important to understand. You do not have to give ground to the devil because you've overcome. But can we give ground back up? Yes, we can and many do. And what? No, well, that's, that's, the, that's exactly, that's the hope. Um, and so um, that's, that's what we've got to understand here. The authority that we have in Christ is one that's united with Christ, means Satan has no authority unless we give him authority and power. The word of God abides in these young men. The, the phrase word of God Yes, as many times in the New Testament, uh, it, it refers not only to the written word of God, which we call the Bible, but to all of God's verbal self-expression, including the apostolic teaching and preaching, instruction. Uh, the best way to defeat the devil in your life is to know and use the sword of the spirit, God's word, the Bible against him. It's what Jesus did during his 40 days of temptation in the wilderness, Right. Satan used parts of scripture, parts and twisted it. What did Jesus use against it? 
the word of God. The correct, correctly presented and understood word of God. So he used scripture to defeat Satan. And so Jesus is our example there as well. Uh, We yield the sword of the spirit, the word of God, as Paul says in Ephesians 6. All believers should be then characterized here then by spiritual strength of using the word of God. Uh, Don't be a pushover with the devil. When someone throws at you in this culture, oh, but if God's a God of love, then fill in the blank of whatever their argument is. You can, if you know scripture, go back at them with the correct understanding of scripture. Now, that doesn't mean they're necessarily going to listen to you, but you're not going to give up any ground. We stand firm. In him. Um, So the secret of spiritual growth, everyone, strength is knowledge and practice of God's word. Knowledge of the word takes the fangs out of the serpent, takes the teeth out of the roaring lion, the devil who walks about seeking to devour us. A fangless snake and a toothless lion cannot do much damage. I love that idea. That picture. I was reading a book this week um, that was dealing, you know, with uh, counseling, biblical counseling with people that are, you know, dealing with just a lot of different stuff in their life. And one of the things this guy says is that most people probably face no more than five major crises in life. And I thought, okay, that's interesting. But each day, you experience a dozen dinky problems that must be defeated. Okay. Uh, Daily life is invaded with tiny demonic warriors. Little things that we do constant battle with. And you you go to work and you encounter a difficulty at work. Uh, Some sort of nuance of something that goes on with someone there, a a lurking temptation that may be in your life. Uh, But if your mind is saturated with scripture, the love of God, the presence of God in your life, you're equipped to win and be victorious over that temptation. Uh, You're not a soldier in enemy territory in that case, illy equipped to handle the enemy. You're a soldier who daily can put on the whole armor of God. And having done so, can stand against the schemes of the devil. And what this person was arguing is that what we have to be careful about is we have to understand the schemes of the devil are also the dinky little decisions. Because then they start adding up. So in these verses, very specifically, and I'm going to kind of lay the table for next week. These verses, John's preparing the church for what he wants to say in verses 15 through 17. Uh, Because of who and what they are, they must not yield to the temptation of loving the world, of putting anything in the world system ahead of God. John has confidence in his readers at the different ages, different spots in their spiritual life. He wants them to have confidence. So these verses remind us of who we are as Christians as we wrap this up. 
regardless of our level of spiritual maturity, certain things are true about us. What's the certain thing that's true about us as believers? Forgiveness. It's certain. You got to live like it's certain. You got you to understand that your sins have been forgiven. We've come then. What's another thing about us as, as, as believers, as, as we've become a believer, what's another characteristic that we saw tonight? We've come to know God. As we live that life out through that relationship with Christ. So you should be strong spiritually. You you should be able to overcome Satan's influence in your life that is being attacked daily. Yeah. So what it comes down to here, everyone, as we close right now, we we should be strong spiritually. We should remain daily in the word so that we are strong. We should overcome Satan's influence in our lives by the means of our knowledge and the practice of God's word. And um, what we are needing to be doing then as it will shift into this is we need to live up to who we are in the family. Whether you're new as a believer or whether you've been a believer for a long time and have really grown in him, it's, we're all in the same family. And then we need to live up to being in his family for his namesake. Because he's already done his part. Okay? Let's pray.